This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. We gonna bounce back on the motherfucker, no question. Bounce back on who? Marlo, boss. Oh, he gonna fall. Marlo, Marlo ain't got shit to do with it. Marlo couldn't get string like that. String died because of some other shit. That nigga was right. Fuck Marlo. Fuck this fucking war. All this beef over a couple of fucking corners. Don't matter who did what to who at this point. Fact is, we went to war, and now there ain't no going back. that we're already at the end of season three, your favorite season. And yet here we are, ready to close out a magnificent season in The Wire, many of whom, or I should say many folks who believe that this is the best season. I don't think it is, but it's not something that, uh, it's not a hill I'm necessarily willing to die on because there are plenty of reasons why season three is the best. I said this a few podcasts ago that I was going to look at the final episodes of this particular season as if The Wire were ending, just to sort of get in the framework of, or the frame of mind of how it actually was at the time that this was supposed to be the final season, which is why some of the conclusions that we see in this, I think it makes them even more sensical than than before, where it's just like, oh, now I get why they ended it this way. It's because, oh, they didn't think that they were coming back. But uh, in this one, all the... All the little details are wrapped up. All the the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And we get a glimpse of the new lives that some of these near and dear characters have. And also how some of them really don't want to distance themselves from their old life as well. So a lot going on in this one. But this is about closure, finality, and wrapping up a, a lot of different storylines that have been established, not just this season, but over the course of three seasons. So Van, what were some of your takeaways from this last episode of season three? Death of a dynasty, you know? This is the end of the Barsdales. Uh, you know, it started last uh, last episode in terms of with the death of the number two. But in this particular one, we're going to see uh, the Barsdale organization, the anchor of this show, be gone forever. And it makes a lot of sense that they envision this as the last episode of The Wire. Because, you know, if you're dealing with the Barsdale's ending, 
you don't think that the show is going to have the opportunity or the chance to build up a whole different criminal organization to take their place, even though they've already been laying the groundwork down with the Stanfield organization, Stanfield, no S, Stanfield organization. But yeah, the death of a dynasty, Barstow's coming to an end, but also just a whole bunch of I-dotting, T-crossing episode. Close us up, get us out, and almost like the guillotine coming down on some characters and other characters showing how they're going to roll out from under the blade. Now, is this, uh, since you love season three as much as you do, would, let's pretend that the first three seasons, this is all we have of The Wire. Would you have considered this a good series finale? Great question. Yes. Uh, Albeit a very depressing one. The actual series finale of The Wire I feel like gives us a lot more hope and a lot more to bite our teeth into than this one does. There are some open-ended questions here. Um, And the fate of some characters here doesn't look to be very much different uh, than, than what was going on a couple of episodes before. And while that is true with the actual series finale of the show, there is still a tremendous amount of hope at least through a couple of characters for you to glom onto there. This one would have been a more hopeless season finale, if I'm being quite honest. Yeah, I mean, I think it gives you the closure that you need because you see evolution by some of the major characters and you see how their storylines are wrapped up. Um, but I think I probably would have looked at it as a really good finale. But in in I, I don't know if I would have said that the season or if this were a season finale, if it was better than, say, the, the previous episode where Stringer Bell is killed. I don't know if I would be willing to kind of take it that far. But if this were it, I mean, it would it would probably be a really good finale. Now, you mentioned you called the Barksales a, dyna- a dynasty, which, you know, I agree with in the scope of The Wire. I was sitting up here, as you were saying that, trying to think, OK, if they were an NBA dynasty, what dynasty would they be? I feel like hmm. they're more of... And granted, this is three seasons. You don't you don't know the period of years that it takes you over, but it it feels like this was a shorter dynasty, if you will. Like it wasn't, you know, like the Showtime in the eighties that seemed to go on forever. Even though I know that obviously the Celtics provided them with a lot of resistance. It feel you know it actually it kind of reminds me of a team that is near and dear to my heart. The Pistons. the Pistons. That's exactly what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. The Pistons in the two in yeah. the two thousands, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. Though yeah. I guess you can make a case for either one, either Pistons dynasty. I was, I was thinking, of, I was thinking of the Bad Boys. Yeah, yes. I mean, the Bad Boys might be right because look, the mm-hmm. by the time the when the Pistons started to get good, which is you know we're talking about late eighties, uh, they had to run up against Boston. They they it was a process. They had to take that stair step climb. They had to get through Boston. You know, they lost to them in the Eastern Conference Finals. Came back you know, finally went to the finals only to lose to the Lakers. Then they win a title against the Lakers. Then they win a title against Portland. It was a nice, tidy run. And that's kind of what the Bark sales mm-hmm. were. A nice, tidy run of like, oh, to Avon to get the towers. You know, they had to go through, you know, some major competition, maybe a Philly, maybe a Boston, because clearly they're 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 in the Eastern Conference. So um, right, they have to right. go through that. And then once they get there, the, period, the time of like the height of the Barksdale success that we saw to win it ended feels like two championships to me. Yeah. You know? And to be honest with you, another thing is a young up-and-coming gun shot them out of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like Marlo came along with the Michael Jordan shit after he got, he got bullied for a little while. But after he figured out how to finish in the lane, you know what I mean? After he, he got him another gunner with him, they figured it out. So, yeah, I, I would say that. And, you know, it we don't know exactly how long. And that's kind of, you know, it starts. You, you assume that there have been some time. We don't know exactly how long. But we do know that these things don't last forever. So it was probably relatively brief. Yeah. Uh, probably relatively brief that they wore the the, the crowns in Baltimore. Or that uh, I guess Avon uh, believes that that he certainly wore it. Yeah. Uh, as we mentioned, lots happened. A, a lot of things happened in this episode. A lot of things that are, are wrapped up. So uh, let me get to the recap here. Uh, so the detail that kind of opens with them finding out that Stringer was murdered. Uh, Bunk is on the scene. And uh, this is a extraordinarily, you would think that him being murdered I, I don't know if relief is the right word, but you would think that, say, maybe McNulty would feel some sense of uh, of, of pride or, um, you know, accomplishment, if you will. Mm -hmm. But he didn't. He sulked pretty much this whole episode. Like, uh, Yeah, it's like his <laughs> fucking dog died. Yeah, he like, did. It, like, it's not that, like, because if, if something happens to Stringer, then he's off the street. You would think that that's what McNulty wanted. McNulty didn't care about getting Stringer off the street. He cared about he cared about catching him. And those are two different things. So, yeah, McNulty was sad that Stringer was gone. So, I, and I wouldn't even say that McNulty, you know, it, it wasn't just about getting him off the street. The part, as he mentioned this, he mentions this to Bunk. He wanted, wanted Stringer, him. yeah, he wanted Stringer to know who beat yeah. him. And, you know, one thing about The Wire is that they definitely specialize in full circle moments. So again, if you're looking at this as this is the end of this series, remember how we started with McNulty and Stringer in the courtroom together. Right. And mm -hmm. Stringer getting the best of McNulty which McNulty never let him forget, or he never forgot, I should say. He could never let that go, that Stringer had upended him in some way and was just so smooth and with being kind of uncatchable, seemed to taunt uh, his success in McNulty's face, and he couldn't really get over that. Um, Hamsterdam is gone. Look, you know, got some camera crews that showed up, and, well, that went that. Uh, Bunny Colvin, he gets um, his comeuppance, if you will. He kind of had it in his mind that he had this plan that, all right, I'm going to go out standing tall. I got my 30. I'm a major. Uh -huh. I don't care what y'all do to me. Turns out Rawls and Burrell had sort of the last laugh because they bust him down and they kind of make him eat crow in this situation or think they do in a way that Bunny hadn't really anticipated that he would go out when he did. That, however, uh, Bunny being put out to pasture Leaves the door open for one Major Daniels, who, mm. uh, yeah, uh, so Cedric Daniels has finally made it to Major, and he, despite, um, you know, you think about where Daniels started, where I think he thought that the best way to get to Major was to kiss as much ass as possible. It turns out he didn't really have to kiss that much ass. I mean, he had, did at some point, but he was able to do things kind of his own way and still get to the point that he needed to. Uh, the marriage part didn't come along with it, but nevertheless, uh, he still got his way. Uh, McNulty prepares for a, a new life in the Western District, and uh, we see the reemergence of an old character from season two that comes into play here. And in a smaller sort of development within the detail, uh, Kima is using the McNulty whole plan as, as good as possible. <laughs> yeah. McNulty gave her the blueprint, and she was like, I'm running with it. Mm -hmm. um, that's, a that's a file that's a way that we missed. Yes, yes, it yeah. is. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. Um, 
On the political side, Royce gets totally savage for Amsterdam, which everybody could see coming. Karketi, though, is having initially, I should say, has some mixed feelings about using Amsterdam to his political advantage because he sees the good it actually can accomplish. But he, of course, does not do that and instead has a mayoral moment. Finally, we see that him doing all this behind the scenes maneuvering uh, about exploring a mayoral run, it finally comes to a head. And you see at the end of this episode, he is indeed running for mayor against his good friend who probably hates his fucking guts now because <laughs> he, he completely lied about his intentions and tried to avoid those. Uh, street level, you see Avon dealing with the aftermath of Stringer's death. Avon seems depressed. I, I gotta be honest. He is absolutely gutted by this. Yeah, yes. he's sulking around too. Uh, the sulkers of this episode are Avon and McNulty. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, he uh, He's depressed, um, is not really running. I, I think he thought maybe once Stringer was out of the way and he was able to resume his, his position as the sole um, head of the Barksdale organization, I'm sure he thought it would feel much differently than it did. He wasn't even interested in dealing drugs anymore. I mean, he just, I mean, he was still, you know, part of the organization, but his lack of interest in anything happening around him because he's so caught up about Stringer was really quite um, startling. He does, though, eventually get the cuffs and he learns because McNulty was only too happy to share that Stringer was the one who sold him out. And uh, we also see Omar uh, and Brother Muzon, they have their parting, if you will, because Brother Muzon returns Dante to him. Uh -huh. And uh, the last one of the last images we see in this episode is Omar hauling his weaponry into the Baltimore River. Now, normally we do a character deep dive, but that seemed kind of like a moot point considering this is the final episode of season three. So this is mostly about kind of wrapping up storylines and still some great scenes in this. So, of course, we're going to go over those as we often do. So let's start there. Uh, what were some of your favorite scenes from Mission Accomplished? Okay. One of my favorite scenes is when Jimmy McNulty turns up in Stringer's apartment. Yes. And I'll tell you why I love this scene so much. It's one of the more racist scenes in the history of The Wire. You know what, Van? Okay, I'm so glad <laughs> you did this because I thought, I thought that they, that, all right, I was like, I'm going to be the one to say it. I'm going to be the one to say it. Like, yo, it was kind of racist, the, the assumptions McNulty has clearly made. See, you know what? We here, man. We here. Right, I was thinking right. the same fucking thing. Go like, ahead. What you expect? What you expect his apartment to look like? Big posters of Scarface, empty forty bottles everywhere. Yeah, he's rich. He's reading Wealth of Nations. Well, you know he takes a macroeconomics class, right? So the the fact that he's reading Wealth of Nations, which is the starter book to anybody's understanding of economics. It's right before you get to Keys or any of those guys like that, right? It's the starter book to any understanding of economics. So it shouldn't have really surprised you that you saw Wealth of Nations in his, in his, in his fucking house. He's got some samurai swords. Big fucking deal. Like, like I mean, to me, like, that's the type of stuff that they buy. He's got three samurai swords there. That's the kind of stuff that they buy. The waterfall, all of that stuff. If you've ever been to a dope dealer's house, that's the type of shit that they have. Like, really, they have, it's nice shit, you know what I'm Especially, saying? Especially, like, and he's not like just a dope dealer. Stringer is a kingpin. That's a totally right. different level. Right, and so when 
when McNulty looks and looks around and goes, who the fuck was I chasing? The reason why I was almost offended by that is because it's like, all right, so is his worth as a human being increased because he has a nicer apartment? Are you, is this some, is this somehow redeeming for Stringer Bell that his place isn't filled with, you know, empty vials and all of that stuff like that? All of these kind of things that Minolte had in his mind about Stringer, I could feel the judgment. I could feel what Minolte thought Stringer's apartment was supposed to look like when I when I saw that. I mean, dare we say, because we don't have these moments often with this show, is this a borderline we love this show, but? Because I, I don't know. The reason I say that, mm-hmm. much like you just laid out, if you think about the bits of details he did know about Stringer's life, he knew at the very least he wasn't dealing with, say, Avon, because Avon right. would be somebody you would expect to have a Scarface poster in a house and maybe not 40 ounces, but like you would expect right. his shit to look more like drug, you know, kind of a um By the way, it's still it still it still didn't, right? It right. still it didn't. Still didn't. Right. Yeah. right. But yeah. But yeah, you might maybe I might give you that. But right. as you said, he knew he was in college. He was taking economic classes, economics classes. Um, on top of that, just the way Stringer dressed, he dressed like a businessman. I mean, right. he was wearing slacks and ties like all the time. He had his own printing store. You know, right. maybe culturally, you might not expect him to have samurai swords. Okay. But for him to be well-read, is that shocking? I mean, you knew he was meticulous and paranoid and smart. Like, based off all those characteristics, none of what McNulty saw in his apartment should have surprised him. The one thing I did think about as I'm watching uh, Stringer's apartment or watching him in Stringer's apartment it was really interesting that this is the first time we've looked into like who Stringer Bell was but no de- no detail is necessarily shocking but we see his place and I, I don't know why this pop thought popped in my mind I wonder did I not even see the inside of his house never there's no I, way I, she I, saw the inside <laughs> I like like I, I doubt she ever saw it I doubt she has ever been there before first of all she gotta be able to get a babysitter to come over there Stringer not gonna wait for all of that. He's just gonna pop up when he pop up. I bet she never. I bet there weren't very many people who ever saw that. That was probably his little zen time to to, to read, you know, Adam Smith and all of that stuff like that, and get used to. It. So it, it probably not wasn't a, a whole bunch of people to see it. Period. But I doubt she ever saw it. Doubt that. No, there's for no sure. way she saw the inside of that place because she yeah. would have moved in the first day she saw it. Right. Right. <laughs> Poor thing. I know. Any other scenes for you? Sure. Uh, slim with Avon. If it's a lie, we fight on that lie. That, that, that honestly, you, you, that's actually my, f- I think that's my favorite line of season three. Yeah. Because, and this is why Slim Charles, man, it's like his moments, he only has high highs in every scene that he's in. And he's always bringing some level of knowledge and wisdom to the game. Right. And yeah. and he has so many of these moments throughout this this uh, season. But, yeah, when he was like, look, it's too late for that. A war has started. Right. Uh, look, we got to live and die on this lie, even if it is like even if, you know, Marlo didn't do it, we got to still get that motherfucker anyway, because that's what this is. So I, troops, I love that scene. Troops in the next room and they need orders. They right. live for orders, and you got to give them. So if it's a lie, we fight on that lie. When, when Marlo and, and Avon lock eyes in court, I love that. Bunk and Jimmy kind of doing their old thing, falling right back into their old habits. Hadn't seen a lot of Bunk in the last couple of episodes. Good to see him again. Uh, Burrell and Mayor Royce. When Burrell stands up to them, right? It's when Burrell tells them exactly what he's not going to do. 
where he uses the leverage of Hamsterdam for such a swarmy, spineless character as Burrell is, I was happy to see him go for it. We were on top of the situation that Colvin would be relieved and his plan aborted. Lying motherfucker. But you heard about the drop in Colvin's felony rate and you sent me packing. Brought in your liberalized do-gooders to seriously consider this horse shit. While Coven's mistake grew and grew. My hands were tied, Mr. Mayor. My department thwarted. I was a prisoner of the goddamn politicians. Or... I leave your office right now willing to say a lot less than that. Other than that, cutting and fruit. And seeing Avon get busted, I didn't like seeing Avon getting busted. But once again, <laughs> even in getting busted. But I like the way he kind of went out because he was like, look, it, it just nigga is what world. it is. Yeah, yeah. So those were some of my favorite scenes from that episode. Yeah, no, I mean, everything that you highlighted was pretty much everything on my list as well. I'll just say, I'll give a nod to the entire final montage, which had many of those scenes kind of wrapped together. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really good. They do, that. that's kind of a wire staple. It's much less violent, but it kind of reminds me of how they wrap up The Godfather. It's like, it's always that final montage where like every single loose end gets dealt with. Because, uh, you know, in addition to Avon seeing Marlo in the courtroom, also was interesting was seeing Brianna there. Uh, mm -hmm. And the look of coldness on her face. Like she clearly didn't want to be there and she wasn't there after a little bit you know also uh i think it just spoke to just how much of the organization had been completely fractured and and destroyed i mean she was as ride or die for the barksdale as a family unit as anybody and now she uh has seen everything that she once cared about completely fall apart you know her son's dead uh, her brother's now headed to jail for a much longer sentence. Everything has evaporated. Uh, you also in that montage see good old Donette. Now she done lost two dudes, mm -hmm. right, to this game. And I can't say I felt sorry for any single tear that fell down her face. I'm sure. Why? Man, look, I know D'Angelo is somewhere doing the Tiger Woods fist pump from beyond after seeing that. <laughs> for but look, though, think about, think about what the game, like when I thought about her, I thought about that song by Jay-Z Allure, right? Yeah. You know, when he talks about the point, the part in Allure where he talks about, you know, the women that don't know that they're the mistresses. You know what I mean? Like, the worst pain is knowing that you're the mistresses only after the guy's dead or whatever or after he gets locked up. I think about that all the time. That must fucking, that would fucking suck. But when I thought about her, not necessarily that she's a mistress, but that the game has killed everything that she's touched. And she's got a son who has a grandma who's probably going to want him to do the same thing. I actually felt for Donette in that scene because it's like people give their entire lives to this. You know what I mean? And and they, they lose so much. So even though she had no business doing what she was doing, I still felt like I felt for her. When I saw her crying, it's like there's a human cost. You don't fucking care. Look at you. like <laughs> No sympathy. None. All she did when D'Angelo was here was nag the shit out of him, all right? <laughs> About what she didn't have and he needed furniture and this and that. And, ah, ah. and then she winds up sleeping with his boss, basically. The same dude that murdered him because she's terrible. She didn't know. She didn't no, know she that. she didn't know that. Now, that would have been, been a hell of a scene if Stringo's, just to let you know, 
you know, before I before I put it in, just let you know. Okay, I'm but the let's one let's be let's be a hundred percent real. <laughs> if he'd have told Donette, she wouldn't have gave a fuck. I don't think she would have cared. I don't. I, I promise I don't you, know. I do not think Donette would have cared. You think? You think if Stringer tells Donette that he was behind D'Angelo's death, that she still would? No, I think she, she would not have cared. She would have still got with Stringer anyway, especially. Oh, oh, she would have. She would have. A hundred percent. She was more committed to the life than D'Angelo was. If Stringer was just like, hey, he was a liability. He was going to turn us all in. I'm sorry. I had to do something. She'd have been like, you know what? It was fucked up, but I can see your point. And would have kept it moving. I have to know what the people think. I think I'm right. We got to know. If... I, I, I don't think she would have still been down if she knew if she that he had had enough killed. to get with String, okay? Like, she grimy enough to do that. And wait, let's not forget her other layer of grime. You not only get with String, but you got the nerve to get, try to get a man D'Angelo's clothes. Whatever, man. D'Angelo didn't man, need the clothes. That's fucked up. That's fucked up, man. And Stringer played that like a G. Rest in peace, Stringer, man. I'm an ex <laughs> Right? See what I'm saying? I'm too large. I'm an man, XL. I'm too large for that, that little she nigga clothes. So, no, I don't think she would have mm-hmm. cared if he would have told her the truth. She would have rolled for him hard, definitely. Uh, also, a uh, comedic scene before his untimely death of Johnny trying to, I, though I shouldn't say untimely because it was so expected given the way that Johnny was going. Uh, Johnny trying to get Carver out of $5. <laughs> my man, my man, my man. Yo, you think I could get like $5? I need like five dollars gallon bus. I look like a tourist to you. Yeah, I swear to God. Looking like that, walking into an open air drug market, why the hell would I think you'll spend my five dollars on bus fare? <laughs> Shit. Cause I already got my blast. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, not yeah. even it not even occurring to him, which was why he was always so bad at these plans anyway. It's like, dude, you in the middle of a free drug zone and you're trying to get five dollars. Like you're not about to go into this one of these uh row houses and get totally blasted. Like we gotta we right. gotta have a little bit more um common sense than that. And uh your boy Bodie getting himself out of a jam because of contrapment. <laughs> contrapment. Love that. I love the fact that of, of everyone, my favorite character in the whole history of the show, Bodie, was able to not get rung up with the rest of the bar stairs. And by the way, that is another father's away for later moment right there. We'll come to that yes, a little definitely. bit. Definitely. And plus you sort of see. That even though, you know, Bodie is not necessarily a learned man, if you will, not a, mm-hmm. not a thinker, but he is able to survive because he kind of picks up just enough to where he's able to maneuver out of some tight situations or see the bigger picture at the right moment. So um, mm-hmm. that was definitely, uh, you know, a good a good scene for him where, you know, um, he had a point. Also, you know, I guess if we were doing a well, I'll save that. I'll save that file this away for later. I won't. I won't refer to it now. Now, uh, in terms of this episode, uh, Van, what aged the best to you? This aged insanely mm. well. The idea of fighting on a lie. Oh God, yes. I mean, that is, it's, it's that age. Regimes have been destroyed over that. The, yeah, that aged incredibly well. Number one. That was going on while this episode of The Wire was originally being aired because we were in yep. Iraq. So, so fighting on a lie is worth thin. Uh, it works. It's undefeated that 
you know, sometimes, especially in situations where there's major, major strife, you get too deep, deep into it, and wars are going to be fought for things that are untrue and not worth the cost. Uh, but you have to do them because once you get so deep in, you have to give your soldiers something to believe in. And if it's a lie, uh, it's a lie. Another thing is I saw in here is um, there's a point where Snoop is taking credit for killing uh, uh, Stringer. And she's talking about how Chris did it and how Stringer was reacting. Lying to the homies. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's time. Lying that's to the homies. Timeless. I remember, I'll never forget. Van Lathan Sidebar, my homie Ian Spooner. Say his name. Ian Spooner. Ian Spooner is his name. Was telling us about a basketball game that he played in. Ian Barely Duncan. Ian 6'3. I mean, we all, but when we were when we were kids back, you know, in the day, we were up there. You know what I'm saying? Like I was, and I'll put it up. We getting up there, bang, bang, doing the whole thing. Ian could never really jump. He just couldn't. He could never really jump. And he's talking to me like, like a game that not me, not Ryan, not any of them, not Trey, not Gino, none of my homeboys back in Baton Rouge were in. Ian finally caught his first body. Okay. Like he, oh, he's like, he finally caught his first body. He tells us, he goes, hey, bro, I got one today. I got one today, man. I got one. I'm like, hmm. Well, tell me what happened. And he's like, uh, dog, the lane just opened up. I couldn't believe it. And I just, boom, took flight. And we all looked around like, yo, you lying. <laughs> that didn't happen. Like, you didn't bang on nobody. Like, the light didn't open up. And you bang on you bang on someone, you lying. But that happens. In groups, you lie to the homies and get your rep up. So when I saw Snoop do that, I was thinking, look, that's Ian right there. That lane never opened up. We don't believe that. We'd have to see it on video. I've never seen you dunk. I've never seen you dunk. Ever. Never you might have did it when you so heard him. Somebody. <laughs> no, never. I've never seen him dunk the ball. <laughs> never. Ian Spooner. Ian Spooner, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. At Ian Vaughn. Look him up. Tell him I said he I can't I can't wait dunk. to people ride into Ian's mention somewhere or find him. Because you, know you know he's Twitter detectives, man. You already know. And somebody is going to find him and they'll be like, Van says you can't duck. <laughs> and this is going to be a whole thing, thanks to you. <laughs> um, yep. You well, uh, definitely I thought what, what aged well is is not just political maneuvering, but the fact that there are just some people that if there was an apocalypse, that it would just be them and the roaches. And, mm. and that is what Burrell is. Even Ross. But I think I think Burrell <laughs> is like way he more, more so. so than him. And it, I was like, man, because he reminded me, talk about a sidebar, he reminded me of a boss I had at ESPN, you know, who was somebody that had been there for so long and was so baked and embedded in the ESPN culture and was an asshole too, by the way, definitely a cover your ass kind of guy. And he had been through multiple ESPN regimes, but this dude always survived mm. because he always knew where the bodies were buried. And just when you thought that you finally with a gigantic can of raid would be able to end him, he would just somehow be able to slither and escape and therefore maintain his position at uh, ESPN. So Burrell, maybe that's why I have just like refused to pronounce his name correctly and have generally treated him with disdain. Mm -hmm. But he reminds me of somebody I once worked for at 
at ESPN. So that kind of political maneuvering and those kind of guys, like they just age incredibly well. Uh, was there anything that uh, aged the worst for you? Yeah, something, and I'm triggered these days. So holers out there, uh, forgive me. Something jumped out at me that aged particularly bad. It jumped out at me when they were going in to get Avon. Herc asks, why should we have to knock? Oh, yeah, that's a that's a good one. A good one and a bad and, one, obviously. And a bad one. He goes, why should we have to knock? We know they're in there, blah, 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 blah. So essentially, he wanted a no-knock. The concept of a no-knock warrant, for all kinds of reasons that we don't have to get into on the podcast right now, keep it about the wire, has aged fucking terribly. And it's another one of those things that we have to take a strong look at uh, in our society, in our culture, um, and exactly what we're empowering law enforcement to do. But those things can be deadly and rest in peace. Yeah, that's that's a a good thing to point out for um, aging the worst. In in general, though, I I would ask this uh, question, particularly since we're at the the last um, episode of the season. Does Does the stuff with the cops hit you differently because of everything that has happened, you know, since this series came out. Not because we didn't know then that police brutality didn't exist or you brought up the no-knock warrant, but, like, do you find yourself cringing at more scenes than maybe you used to on previous rewatches? Yeah, it does, and it's because I've changed, not because anything else has changed, right? When The Wire first came out, it was a very brave look at policing, right? A super brave look at policing. It's a look at policing that has ticked off a lot of people. I think that there was, even to me, there was a part of that, especially being a younger man and having grown up in a place where I've been handcuffed multiple times, where I've been assaulted by police, all of those things, right? There was a weird way that coming up, I resigned myself to the fact that that's just kind of the way things are. And when I saw The Wire, it reflected that reality. It reflected a reality that, hey, you know, cops go too far. In this instance, cops go too far. In that instance, it's just kind of how things are. As I grow and mature, I start to see how systems suffocate people and how we have to eventually assert ourselves as citizens to change uh, some of those things. So now, yeah, everything I see is like, no. like, And it's hard for me. You know, we're talking about Presbulewski. When I first watched The Wire towards the end, Presbulewski was one of my favorite character. I never can look at him now and forget that he blinded a black kid and then, you know, shot that other cop. I just can't. It, it, those are things that happen. But the show was different for me as a younger man. Not that anything's changed. I still contextualize it for the time that it came out in and for not the way that the show exists because I personally believe that Simon and Burns wanted us to feel those emotions then, but maybe we weren't ready to feel them. And hopefully now on a rewatch, when people are watching this show along with us or watching it wherever they're watching it at, they'll see how the show itself is actually telling you about some of the systemic inadequacies of policing in Baltimore, but really all over the place. So, yeah, it it is a little bit different for me. What about Uh, you? Yeah, it's different. Like, there are things that I maybe cringe at now that I don't cringe at before. But there's also, on the flip side, there are moments where they talk about some of the evergreen issues with police that really hit home harder, but in a good way now to just, Mm -hmm. that allows for like a a conversation. They're able to put things into context that could certainly apply for, uh, apply to today. I I think probably 90% of the things 
that they showed in this series about the police. I think 90% of those things age well, but there's like a small right. percentage of them that it's like, eh, I don't know if that would be yeah. in there if there was today. I do want to go back to what right. aged the best for a moment because there was something uh, that I kind of forgot about. It, it's one of the major themes of this episode, which is when you realize that your job won't fulfill you. And mm. that that mm. definitely ages really, really well. That is... Essentially, the theme of this episode for McNulty is, look, Lester told him, Daniels told him, even Landsman told him. I mean, so many people throughout the first three seasons told McNulty the job is not going to be enough for you. You think that it will, but it will not. And I think especially if you experience some level of professional success and maybe you're at a point where your professional success and your personal success aren't necessarily on the same pages. You tend to pour more into one, to pour more energy into the one that's being successful at the moment, thinking that whatever's not, you know, filling the void will fill the void. And that's just like never really been true. I mean, I know there are some people who love their jobs and who, um, you know, consider themselves workaholics, but I think even workaholics would admit that they're is always going to be parts of their professional life that will never satisfy him. So I thought this was a, it was a really interesting glimpse into McNulty that I think brought him back into seeming more likable than he had been. Mm. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, because yeah. Humanized it humanized him. him a lot, especially him showing up at BD's door and just saying, Hey, I guess I finished something today. Your case. More than that. It's like everything I poured into a glass came out the bottom. And I just kept on pouring. Like the thing had a hole in it, you know? Things that make me right for this job, maybe they're the same things that make me wrong for everything else. Do you want to come inside for a drink? Not tonight. But if it's not too late, I wouldn't mind... Meeting your kids. Uh, I will say, I did put that a bit in the category of a we love this show, but I thought that was really abrupt. Like, he just, like, what would it, what was his reason to show up at BD's house? I was just in the neighborhood. Like, yeah. it just seemed kind of like, yeah. you, it would have made sense. And this is, by the way, it's the payoff from a file this away for later that we talked about uh, a few episodes ago when he sees the cop that he thinks is her and is not her. Mm-hmm. And then I think you even pointed out there was a picture in the details office of her. Of her and they pants. The right. Picture. So they kind of give you some indication that she's coming back on the scene. But I just wish that it would have just been a little smoother, the transition, because it was just mm-hmm. like, oh, he just shows up out of the out of nowhere. And then much to, you know, I guess the full growth of McNulty, he turns down both a drink and sex and offers to meet the kids, which is like, who is this guy? Like, <laughs> this yeah. is not the, the, the McNulty that we have, you know, really come to know. So, um, he really, McNulty has really betrayed his penis these last couple of episodes. Yeah, you're right, because he did it with the uh, Terry D'Agostino. He did it there. Yeah, he's really he's really betrayed his penis like that. Like, McNulty's penis is probably like, yo, man, what's going on, bro? We've been here for a long time, it's like, bro. It's Where like he's you? outgrown it. You know what I'm saying? It's like... Yeah, he's outgrown his own penis. This is, it's it's yeah, sort of tragic, because this is not the, the whoring McNulty that we're used to. You know what? It's like uh, he outgrew it and from a metaphorical standpoint, handed it to Kima, who is now, who's like the new Mc, who's the now, new McNulty. Now, now Kima slinging that whap all around Baltimore, man. Like, dad, damn. Kima got the whap 
McNulty got the dap, the depressed ass penis. Like, like it's like they she's Kima out here. That's a hell of a scene, too. By the way, that was a hell of you a scene. You rewind. I know <laughs> you rewind. It's okay, man. Yeah. Now that was uh, we should do that one on the rewatchables, Bill. <laughs> that scene right there. A breakdown and the girl. Of, of, of Kima's, uh, of Kima's sex scene. And I would also say right. um that with within this whole, you know, McNulty kind of finding that he's a, a different person, it it was good in a way that it was very good, I think, that at least him and Daniels ended on a note where they didn't, like, completely hate each other. Because uh, yeah. Daniels had every right to just give McNulty a swift kick in the ass and, and kind of keep him up. Punch him in the yeah, shit. Yeah, he did, because he, mm-hmm. he really did him dirty. Ultimately, he was right, but sometimes you can be right and wrong at the same time, which it seemed like is McNulty's... Um, special skill, if you will. Now let's talk about the file this away for laters is that it, it's it's so it's so many, but in a way, again, I'm like if I'm thinking about this as if, if this were a series finale, uh it's kind of unfair because you know season four goes in uh, kind of a, a new and different direction because a lot of the old storylines have been put to bed. But nevertheless, there are still a lot of file this away for laters that that still point us in a good direction towards season four. What were some of the ones you noticed? Uh, McNulty and Bunk. Yeah. Kind of their whole thing is a little follow us away for a later moment. Obviously, McNulty and Beatty yeah. is That's a, a huge, huge follow us away this, uh, a huge follow us away for a later moment. Uh, Marlo seeing Avon. Huge follow us away for a later moment. Those two characters will have a more formal introduction at some point in the future. And that introduction is one of the better scenes in The Wire. Love you know, Definitely, that it's scene. one of, considering how I feel about the season that it comes in, is that that's one of the, that's one of the standout moments where it, it momentarily has me believing, oh, maybe it's not that bad this season. It's like, uh, then something else happens. I'm like, yes, it is that bad. But anyway... Yes, that's it. Let's see what else. I, you know, those are the only ones that I had written down because everything else, they're fathers away for laters, but there's just so many coming at you because they're setting up, uh, they're not setting stuff up, but they end up paying things off that they didn't think they were going to have to pay off. So yeah, a lot of it, it's a fathers away for later episode, really, yeah. more than it is even scenes. Yeah, Because uh, what they do is, it's more or less, they sort of pick it up and they pick up where certain characters left off and then just kind of expand their universe. Because again, the thought right. process at this point was that it was ending here. And so they have to expand their their universe, which is why I think, you know, the, the brilliance of season four, I think the degree of difficulty is higher. We'll get into to that um, and when we do kind of our, our opening episode one of, of season four. But I think that's why I've always sided with season four as being a better season because I think the degree of di- difficulty was different from season three. Mm. Um, Fair enough. So uh, also in terms of Fathers Away for later moments, uh, Bubs having a young apprentice is <laughs> a, a Fathers mm-hmm. Away for a later moment. Omar throwing his tools in the river. Uh, that's a father's away for a later moment. And Prez and the scene with Lester where he admits that he was never really meant to be a cop. That's right. um, essentially um, a gigantic a gigantic, a gigantic father's away, um, you know, for later moments. And just in thinking about that scene, I tell you what I would never have seen coming is I would have never seen the next season being built around Presbaluski the way that it was. Never would have saw that coming. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I you you think that uh, you think that of all the characters in the detail, one that would have outused their usefulness is Presbaluski. 
But if there's any member of the detail that's to a large degree absent from the next season, it's somebody different. I'll yeah, put it to you yeah. that way. But uh, but but Press Belusky, you would think that he would have been that guy that this was the end of his story, but in many ways it was the beginning. Um. Oh, another big file that's away for late. Well, I would say I don't know if this fits file this away for later, but just something I thought of. What if Avon would have told Slim to pull the trigger on Marlo? You know what I'm saying? Is that you? You think of, that's the great thing too? I I think about watching The Wire. There are so many interesting like what if moments. And like that was a mm-hmm. big one because that missed opportunity there winds up being huge over the next couple seasons. It's like there was an opportunity to actually take care of Marlo right then. Yeah. What is crazy? What Slim doesn't know is if Slim pulls the trigger right there, then temporarily Slim runs. Exactly. Everything. It was his chance because, to be in power. Because Right, because even though, you know, Slim's going to talk about whether or not he wants to be in that role in a, in a scene later on in the series, like, the Stansfield organization would have been gone, basically. They took the head off them. And then, at the same time, Avon was getting busted. Stringer was dead. The ranking member of the Barksdales would have been Slim, and he would have had to find a way to put stuff together. You know, so it, it it's just a, a weird. I always think about. It. I don't know why I keep watching these scenes, uh, thinking that it's gonna go different. <laughs> I know, like I was on the edge of my seat watching that. Like, come on, man, come on, man, yeah, come like, on, man. No, trigger, you know how it turns out. They don't, they don't go. If you got them, why wouldn't you take them? But he had to wait for the order. A Slim Charles, a good always. soldier. And you know, to your point about Slim being uh, in charge, guess who had to be his number two just based off process of elimination? Bodie. It would have been Bodie. Him and Bodie would have been running things. They wouldn't have made it a week, dog. Like <laughs> not a week, man. Not a they week. They would not have made it at well, all. Be like, be like, Bodie, we're two dollars short on the count on one of our corners. Kill him. Kill everybody. Like murk him. I do think that, you know, I'm gonna be honest with you. I think Bodie could have grown into the role of being a number two for the Barksdale. I think Bodie could have done well, it, man. Think about how much he grew after D'Angelo. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did he did evolve a little bit. But you might have been looking... Oh, well, granted, I guess he kind of ran away off into the yonder. But technically, I guess if he'd have stuck, stuck around, it might have been Slim Charles, Bodie, and Poot. That sounds like a terrible combination. <laughs> man, Poot would have been getting so many glazed donuts. It would have been... If, Poot, if you gave Poot that leadership, like, really... Really, you could Poot could never have been that high up in the Barcel organization because all that would have happened is that there'd have been so much of a load on the clinics around West Baltimore with people coming in there for pregnancies and also for sexually transmitted diseases. Poot can't have that. That that's too much power. It is. For Poot he'd have had like sixty three kids. Like it would just. <laughs> 63 kids. Yeah, kids man. all over the city. Mm-hmm. That reminds me, Van, we missed the opportunity, uh, and it's worth mentioning now as we head to wrap up, uh, a good scene, uh, since we were talking about coupling, was Bernard and Squeak. They also come to a conclusion. Done. <laughs> done. Bernard and Squeak, done. Like, And 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 the, one of the best lines, Bernard's like, please take me to jail. Because Squeak just won't stop squawking. Because I love, I live, love that man. squeak. 
even in handcuffs has that same energy to blame Bernard for why in trouble. Stupidest guy I ever dated. Yeah. Yep. Um, I will say there's another little scene here in the thing that shows uh, the difference, the diverging paths of Herc and Carver as well. Um, when they're looking at everything and how it unfolded, and Carve looks one way and Hurt looks the other way. When they finally roll on Hamstead. Right, they do like a soft focus like, and you see. And, and Carve is bought in and uh, Hurt is so happy that it's over. So uh, it's just it's just interesting seeing those two characters, the burned Ernie of the show, <laughs> kind of go their own separate ways. <laughs> and by the way, I got a question for you. Did Shamrock flip? Because yeah, it seemed like he was flipping. Yeah. It seemed like he was pointing. He's mm. in an interrogation yeah. and he's pointing at people. It seemed like Shamrock flipped, man. man. I, look, Shamrock was tired, man. Like, Stringer had been on his head. He trying to be a good parliamentarian. He trying to study up. Mm -hmm. And here comes Stringer once right. again, lording his whack-ass intelligence over somebody just because he trying to follow the rules and bring some order and shit to the co-op. He also had got nudged out because as long as Stringer was like acting number one, then Shamrock was number two. But then when Avon came back and he was acting number one, then Slim Charles kind of came up into being a number two a little bit once Avon and Stringer sort of had their their little schism. So I guess I guess they gave enough. I guess they gave Shamrock enough reason to go ahead and snitch. I guess, right? I, and I have to give credit to both uh, Avon and Stringer. They did what they say. If you're a number one, you should do. I'm not saying I would do this. They say your number two should never be smarter than you and be able to replace you. And in that case, they both did that wonderfully. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I mean, I love me some Slip Charles, but like Slip Charles, what mm -hmm. I love about Slip Charles is that he's self-aware to know what he doesn't know. And he's like, you know, right. I'm here for shooting people, cracking some heads. He's, you know what? He's like a much more charismatic Weebay. Yeah, yeah. right? Because, yeah. you know, Weebay didn't have much charisma. He was kind of nuts and bolts. But Slip Charles, he gave, gave you some wisdom and some knowledge. You know, he's still going to do what he mm. told, but he's like, I got a lesson for you. Let me tell you what this is. Exactly. Yeah, so I appreciate um, Slim for that. All right. Finally, just a, a small bit of trivia here. We were talking about Avon and we see him about to go back to jail. This is the last time we'll see Avon until season five. So he is not yes. in any of the next season of uh, The Wire. And hopefully that's true. And if it's not, I really don't need 9,000 of y'all uh Tweeting me and telling me it's not like Slim Charles said, we're gonna live on that lie if that happens to not be true. We're gonna fight on that lie. We're gonna fight right. on that lie if that happens to not be true. Uh, I know this is a little tough because there were so many storylines that were wrapped up, but nevertheless, Van, uh, we are tasked to tell people who won this episode. Ah, oh, yeah, another one that's really, really difficult to score if you're judging at home. If somebody had to win this episode, I would say Daniels. Because this is the culmination of all Daniels' hard work. Yeah, he work came out the cleanest, get, probably. He came out the cleanest. Daniels made rank. The, the detail won the season. The detail had a great season. Daniels brought in his case. Finally toppled the Barstow organization. Even pieced it up with Minolte to a degree. Finally, we saw him in sweet loving with him and Ronnie. Yeah. Sweet, that, might, that might be the sweet. most... I don't know. Which sex, which sex scene did you think was more graphic? His or Kima's? Kima was... The goblin on it. <laughs> like, 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 Kima for sure. I'll watch it. I'm like, she is really, how do they do that, man? Like, seriously, like, it, it, cause I was watching not too long ago, I was watching Harlem Nights and I was watching not just Harlem Nights cause I had a black movie film festival here. I was watching Harlem Nights, I was watching Do the Right Thing. 
It's some real tongue that they put. Eddie Murphy's putting real tongue on Jasmine Guy. And Spike Lee, God bless him, Spike Lee writes and directs Do the Right Thing, right? And there's this amazing topless scene that has to be in the movie. And Spike Lee goes, what about the girl from Soul Train? You know, with the big whatever. And he puts Rosie Perez, and, but it's real. Like, they really going. And so I, I'm watching the chemo scene. I'm like, God damn. Like, it's not, I understand that they wear modesty pouches and all of that stuff like that. But she was, she was a child. She was a toddler, basically getting nutrition. So yeah, anyway. she was like uh, also, old boy yeah, in I Game think... of Thrones. The one who uh, was breastfeeding yeah! until he was 19. <laughs> right, like Robin, Robin Aaron. Yeah, so like... Uh, that like that that's that that way way to me was more graphic. Both of them were. I, yeah, because I was going to say, especially they're, they're they're doing it in conjunction with showing Cuddy boxing, and it's like so you get pounding on one end and pounding on another end. Ah! And it's like, <laughs> what are we doing here? And I'm just right. saying those thrusts. Like I'm like I don't know what that modesty thing might have looked like, but it could it just looked like it wasn't. It was it was all biblical between them. <laughs> so yeah, look, I like like, there was yeah. an intense focus on the thrust. For me, I would say who won this episode. I think the detail won, and uh, mm. and that was just overall. I think if you, uh, this was probably, I think this was their best case. I, I do. I think mm. this was their best case. Cleanest for yes, sure. It, yeah. it was definitely their cleanest. A lot of the mistakes that they made the first go round with the Barksdales, they obviously lived and learned and didn't make those again. Uh, and it wasn't as much collateral damage because they have a tendency with their zeal and zest to bust somebody to put folks in situations where they could be collateral damage. Like Orlando was... Wallace. Yeah, Orlando, Orlando Wallace was collateral damage. Yeah. So they minimized kind of doing those things. And then just to have the brilliant tactic of uh, of uh, selling them uh, wiretap phones and just bringing the case all together the way they did, I thought the detail uh, won this episode, even though they didn't get an opportunity to put the cuffs on uh, on Stringer Bell. The reality is that they put the cuffs on Avon again, and he's going to be in jail a lot longer. And there's no way, I mean, it would be pretty surprising if he had ever gotten out. So they, it's, it's sort of like uh, they evolved in a way that was different. They called in the right favors. They got everything going. Um, the, the band came back. I mean, it, it was... Uh, to me, the the wrapping up of this series it shows what a, what a win it was for this for the detail. I think this was easily their best case, and everything came to fruition for them. So, all good. Anyway, so we've gotten to the finish line and and completed all the episodes of season three. You guys know what's next. We will do the season three wrap up with awards and such. Hopefully, more Van Lathan sidebars about homies of his that lie on things they shouldn't. Shout out to Ian. What's his last name? Mm-hmm. Ian Spooner. <laughs> yeah, dunk that shit. Yeah, dunk that shit, bro. We know you ain't dunk you that dunk shit. It, I'm just Ian. saying. That's that's streets is talking. <laughs> streets say you didn't dunk it. And now our entire mm-hmm. audience knows. Uh anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people gonna be walking up to him on the street like, what's your last name? Oh, you didn't dunk that shit, man. Like, <laughs> he's gonna be saying it to him randomly. Uh, he'll never live this down. Anyway, guys, thanks for your support. Continue to listen to us and keep watching The Wire. We'll see y'all next time.